So the topic of postpartum depression is one that I think is being spoken about more and more, or maybe it's just because of being someone that had postpartum depression, I've found different communities that are really bringing it into a space that is, I don't know, more normal. Um, And I felt like I wasn't alone once I found some of those communities. But large in part, those communities are all women. So when I came across Stephen and his story, I knew that he had to come into the third place because it's one thing to talk about postpartum depression from a perspective of someone that has had it or recovered from it, and another to talk about the male partner of someone that was suffering and ultimately passed as a result of her postpartum depression. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really powerful story, and it's a really heavy story, right, David? Right. Yeah, I think it's such an important story to share. For that reason, again, bring men into the conversation. Um, you know, in this episode, I think one of the most powerful things that I walked away from was that postpartum depression is this large umbrella statement that's inaccurate for many postpartum issues. And we need better language around it. And for men to be brought into the conversation to be truly a partner uh, with their significant other in terms of pregnancy and bringing life into this world it really helps to equip uh, the couple to better work through this. So I think you're going to find that this episode is very powerful. It's very personal. Um, I almost want to lead with a caveat that it it is sensitive and it's it's difficult to talk about. So it is important, but uh, do be aware, like, you know, if this is something that you've struggled with, you may want to listen to this with someone else. Or you might want to make sure that you're just really in a safe place to listen uh, because it will certainly draw a lot of emotions. Um, But it is an incredibly important conversation to have and we wanted to share it with you. Absolutely. So welcome, Stephen. We welcome you to explore the third place with us. It is an invitation to the gray space, a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, challenging, empowering, and, and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. Well, I've been really looking forward to getting you on the podcast, Stephen. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. When we all talk about uncomfortable stories, you know, yours has elements of fear, it has loss, and so much more, and all what I would consider pretty challenging and sobering things. So to start, um, let's go to the beginning. Like, can you tell us your story and how that led you to starting the Alexis Joy Foundation? Sure. So it was 2013. Uh, My wife was pregnant. We found out we were pregnant. And we were, to be honest, we were just really blessed. I mean, we found each other. We we had everything that, you know, any young couple could ever want. Um, we lived very privileged lives. And we were, like, on that path, like, met each other, got engaged, got married, bought a house, got pregnant. It was like everything was in order. And so we really, we celebrated for, for nine months. It was just, like, one party after the next, after the next. She was 
you know, glowing. You know, everyone says, oh, you're, you glow when you're pregnant. She, she, she actually did. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, and so we, we just kind of embraced it and enjoyed it. And she was fine, like right up until the delivery, the delivery changed everything. She, I think was like most moms were closer to delivery. She, she really harped a lot on looking up every baby product we were getting. And I I would maybe you could say it was excessive, but I think a lot of parents, um, they want to buy the best of everything, the safest of everything for their children. So, so we get to the delivery room and, you know, it was like every delivery. And I just remember her joking with me back and forth, like, you know, kind of like you got it so easy. You're so lucky you're not in this bed right (laughs) now. Uh, She might've given me the finger once or twice. (laughs) Squeeze your hand so hard. Yeah. Oh my God. And I'm like sleeping on the little cot next to her bed. Like, and uh, so anyway, so she's in, she's in labor and she, we'd been there for quite some time, uh, probably like 12 or 14 hours, I think. And she finally looked at me and said, this baby's coming and I cannot hold, I cannot hold her in anymore. And so I'm calling for a nurse, calling for a doctor, nurse comes in and then the doctor comes in and she says, doc, I, I got to push. And the doctor says, you're a first time mom. If you start pushing now, you're just going to waste your energy. This baby's not coming for two more hours. Your decision doesn't matter to me. Waste your energy now and you won't have it when you need it two hours from now. Or listen to what I say and you'll be fine two hours from now. And just looked at her and said, I have a high-risk pregnancy next door and I have a multiple birth pregnancy. When I'm finished with them, I'll be in to deal with you. And turn around, like real matter-of-factly, just turn around and walked out the door. And so the nurse is in the room and she's, she's pushing and she's screaming. And it was like, it's 12 minutes later. And then, you know, here comes Adriana into the world and she keeps kind of trying to come out, but there, there's no slack. And because the umbilical cords wrap around her neck. And so the nurse is like, I remember you grab one leg, I'll grab the other. And She's pushing. I have one leg. She is. She is the other. There's no doc in the room. The nurse is screaming at the top of her lungs, you know, for for help. Um, then the, you know, it was a code blue de- delivery. The alarms, the sirens, lights, everything's going off. And then, thank God, another nurse came in, grabbed scissors, cut the umbilical cord, and then you know, here comes Adriana. But the, at first sight, which I know now is kind of normal, babies are blue when they first come out. But at first sight, it's like Adriana's dad. Look at her. She's, she wasn't crying. She wasn't breathing. She was completely blue. And so they do some work on Adriana. And then, you know, you hear that first cry. And it's like, oh, my God, that, you know, thank goodness she's all right. During all this chaos, I mean, it seemed like a dozen plus doctors somehow end up in the room. And from zero to 100. Yeah. I mean, it was unbelievable. But like they rush to whoever's life is in danger, which was my daughter at the time. So my wife, including myself, I, I run, run over to the baby and I remember looking back at Alexis and just looking at her and it was like, it was like this glaze over her eyes. I mean, it was like she was gone and she's just laying there like, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to die. I think I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I, I stayed at the hospital for three days with her. Her, her mother was in town with us the first two weeks and she 
she kind of held it together, I'll say, during the time her mother was with us. I think our first night home with our daughter was like every new parent. We're like, what the hell is going on? What do we, we know nothing. Um, we took all the classes, we did that, but we weren't really prepared. And it's just like, you know, anything, you just figure it out, I guess. And Adriana would cry and cry and cry and cry. I mean, she never stopped crying. And I think that her breast milk was tainted from the, from the stress she was under. But when I would hold her, she would relax. And every time she would struggle or the baby would cry when she held her. And every time she would calm down when I held her, it made Alexis feel like she was that much worse of a mother. And she would always say, how are you so good with her? How am I so bad with her? And, you know, and she was really struggling to bond that she was really, really struggling getting that connection, um, with Adriana and breastfeeding was a source of so much stress for her and pressure that it's hard for me to even put into words the shame and the guilt that she felt. Right. And she would force herself and she would just cry while the baby was eating. And she, you know, it was just like everything she was trying to do, there was major obstacles and complications. And these were things that she had been led to believe were just normal and natural and would just come to her, you know, as a mother. It was just, and she just felt like, I don't have any motherly instincts. Like this has been going on since the beginning of time and everything is hard for me. And on the outside, looking into everyone else, it was like, it came easy to them primarily because people don't talk honestly about, you know, parenthood or motherhood. And so though it was difficult, it was hard to recognize that there was anything wrong in the first couple of weeks when her mother left and went back to New Jersey, things really spiraled out of control in a way it's really hard to fathom that like everything could just deteriorate so rapidly. Yeah. So quickly. I mean, it was like truly like a snowball, you know, that just like an avalanche really. And once it got momentum, it was just, and it was a situation where me as a father, I, I didn't know what the heck How could postpartum you? depression was. Right. Um, I distinctly remember at, at the family restaurant that my father owns, looking back, this older man, we were, it was right before, a couple of days before she went into labor, we were leaving the bar and we were walking out, we were having lunch and we were walking out and he turned around and he said, now you watch out for those baby blues, they can be tough. And I don't know why that sticks out in my in my mind now, but oh man, I wish... You know, that was my perception, baby blues, like they'll come, yeah, and they'll that's, go. That's everyone. I mean, that's yeah. everyone. That, that's yeah. the, but I think that it, it's a a term that sticks, right? David, I mean, like you, you hear baby blues and you're like, okay, like it sticks with you. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think that so much of the story is you do feel isolated and I'm, I'm relating to pieces of your story. I, I remember when our oldest, who's now three was born, there was some concerns they ended up being zero at, at the end of the story but uh when he was born he came out blue and i'm so i'm immediately freaking out not knowing that was normal and then similarly i think for us we put so much expectations on how to parent we read every book we we did all the classes just like you did and that almost created a level of expectation that we put on ourselves you know we try we did breastfeeding and there was a similar part of our story where it didn't work 
I think part of what your story and what I'm being triggered by is your wife was trying to communicate something to doctors and there was a, they didn't listen. There wasn't a listening from, moment. From the birth on. Right. You know, it's there's so much of the story about being an advocate, but there's this distrust with the doctors. And then you're trying to put all these expectations on yourself and family and they're unrealistic and we don't have avenues to really talk about it with each other. Right. And I think it's the stigma. It was, yeah, I'm a pretty laid back, practical guy. I think it's helped me being a single parent, but I can't overthink everything or I will go crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just too much stuff to do every day. And I would be like, just give the baby some formula. What's the big deal? I went out, I got formula and she just was like, she could not do it. It was like, she's the worst mom ever. Even if no one would ever know, just in the privacy of our home, it was like, she cannot give this baby formula because she's a bad mom if she does it. And so, you know, from there it was, her mom leaves, I'm going, something's wrong, something's wrong. Not understanding that, like how wrong it is, just we need to go see a doctor. So she actually called the whole ride down. My wife's going like, she, I'm crazy. She's going to think I'm crazy. And her anxiety was just crippling. I mean, when you would talk to her, she would stand up and she would grab her throat and she would just slowly back away from you while you talked. And she would have these anxiety attacks that were, I mean, you could just cut the air. It was so horrendous. And it was at that appointment that we found out that Alexis was diagnosed with PTSD from the delivery of Adriana. Oh, wow. Totally. And, but no doctor had ever told us that she had PTSD and said, hey, she's more prone to experience symptoms of, you know, postpartum depression or here's things to look out for. It was just here you've been diagnosed with something in like a normal person's terms. It's like, oh, here's what, you know, soldiers that are in battle at war or, you know, that witness horrific things. This is what they have. And now I too have this. Well, the, they say that there's two things that come up for me. They say that the closest thing to death is, is birth, right? And that um, as a woman, you actually experience the closest thing to death. So no matter what, whether the experience is everything you envisioned, expected, seamless, easy, no such thing, right? But Or it's the most opposite end of the spectrum, extremely traumatizing, all of that is traumatizing. The body recognizes it as trauma because it's the closest thing to death. Also, your hormone levels drop to what's considered menopausal levels. And I may, who knows, I'm not saying it perfectly. I'm not an expert, but I know that the hormone shift from the second that that child leaves your body on top of the trauma is so profound that the, the body's trying to recalibrate. Like I think of that visual you said where she was just like, blank. I mean, she's she's just trying to recalibrate on top of the trauma that she's experienced, no matter what the level of of trauma it is to outsiders. I, and it's another thing that we do wrong in this country. We are so ill-equipped for what what you really see. I think fathers leave traumatized after witnessing childbirth. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, I don't, I don't, I don't want it to be like, too much information, but like, how would guys be treated if their, you know, areas were exploded during, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's really, I mean, it's, it was like, it was like a, a scene out of a war movie. I mean, it, it is absolutely <laughs> unbelievable 
No one says any of the bad stuff. No one prepares you for any of it. We had never heard any of the negative downsides. So we're at this appointment, and at this point, Alexis has postpartum anxiety. And one of the things that was confusing was, you know, you always hear the term postpartum depression. And Alexis would be like, well, I don't have that because I'm not depressed. I have this anxiety. So it's not postpartum depression. And that's a big problem everywhere that it's, you know, we're referring to all these different things. There's postpartum anxiety, postpartum OCD, postpartum rage, postpartum psychosis, but all these different things that just get this general term postpartum depression instead of perinatal mental health issue. And so it's confusing and people say, oh no, I don't have PPD. So she leaves knowing now that she has PTSD, postpartum anxiety, and she's given, you know, three different exercises. One was to count from 100 to zero backwards in intervals of seven. And then the other was to hold ice cubes in her hand. And the other was to take a warm shower um, and to bend over and hold her ankles as warm as she could possibly handle the water and let the water run down her back. I left, I would say, kind of like optimistic, like not, not realizing how ridiculous these things were. Okay, we have tools now. Yeah. And she left saying, nobody's going to help me. Like, what the hell mm-hmm. is holding ice going to do? And it was just kind of deflating. And then we left with resources, you know, phone number to a crisis hotline, a phone number to some inpatient, you know, psych wards. And, you know, which was scary for her to even think about. And so it was a couple of days later, it was when I really, really knew things were really bad. We were in the, we were in the car. I had dropped our puppy and the baby off at my mother's house. And we were driving to the city for another appointment and we got in the car and it was like, you could just see the anxiety melt away from her. And she was like, she always called me pop. And she was like, pop, I, I know what we have to do. And I'm like, what's that? And I was, I called her mama and she called me pop. Even like when we got married, that was our nicknames. And I said, what's that mama? And she said, we just, you know, it's just listen, hear me out here. You got to hear me out. And I'm like, okay, what is it? And she's like, we had such perfect lives before, you know, like we can find a great family. Let's just, you know, let's look for an adoptive family for Adriana. Hmm. And I'm like, that's, are you crazy? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no way we're giving our daughter up for adoption. Wow. Well, we can go back to the same life. You know, we had the best life. We can go right back to it and we'll make sure she has a great childhood and we'll make sure you know, that the best family gets her and, but we'll just, we're not cut out for this. Like we're, you know, I, I'm not cut out to be a mom and this and that. And I'm like, sweetheart, this is, this is not an option. And in the back of my head, that was when I was going, oh, we're, we got a real problem here and what are we going to do? And so that was the start of, you know, the hour she may sleep a day. That was when it was like, as soon as I thought she might be sleeping, it was, I'm Googling everything. I'm trying to find information. I'm calling psychologists. I'm calling psychiatrists. I'm calling everywhere. And that was the first time in my life I realized that you're screwed if you have a mental health issue in this country because none of them answer the phone. For context, how old was your daughter at that point? Probably around two and a half to three weeks old. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, and that also was like, I had never experienced exhaustion like that in my life because I was working. I was worried sick about my wife, trying to take care of her, basically doing almost everything for, for our daughter and just the emotional ride we were on, you know, having conversations with your wife where she's telling you this is going to end bad. I'm going to kill myself and then trying to find somebody to listen and help when no one will is just crazy um, and, and scary. So, you know, that was like, okay, now we're on suicide watch. That was every loved one, you know, that loves me, that loves my wife, that, you know, it was just, it was all hands on deck. And it was, if I had to do anything, she had to be there with our daughter. And it was constantly dropping, you know, Adriana, the puppy and her off to be with a loved one that I knew could, could keep an eye on her. Um, and them knowing that, you know, she is suicidal right now and, and them stepping up to, to, you know, help. Um, but then every time I would pick her up, it would be like, you know, now she was the crazy person mm. and everyone's going to think I'm crazy for the rest of my life. And how am I ever going to reintegrate into the world and into your family when everyone thinks I'm crazy and me being like, no, this is temporary. You're going to be fine. Everyone loves you. No one thinks you're crazy. And so it was this you know, constantly talking her off ledges and her thinking like, I'm just getting crazier by the minute. And that's the label that I'm stuck with forever. That progressed into, you know, there were seven hospital and crisis center visits in the last 13 days. So she was atypical in that she knew she was in trouble and she desperately sought help. Unlike most moms who suffer in silence. Yeah. You don't, it's, it's one thing to to be in it and another to be able to recognize and, and voice that in that state, especially that is definitely unique. Yeah. And she, she was brutally honest with everybody. I mean, brutally honest down to how she would do it. Mm. Um, and the question came often from, from mental health professionals was, do you have thoughts of harming your baby or your husband too? And she always said, I love my husband. I love my baby. I do not want to hurt them. I would never hurt them. I just don't know how to make it stop. The anxiety. Um, Wow. And the big problem was finding a psychiatrist. And, And it's unfair in this country because, you know, especially seven and a half years ago, if you were a woman, women's health is grossly underfunded and if mental health, the two lowest spots on the, on the totem pool. So if you're a woman with a mental health issue, good luck. Right. But if you have men's problems or you have, you know, it's problem. Here's your pill. Here's this. Let's make money. That's it. Women are treated so differently. You know, the big word is liability. And so you have healthcare and you have these like two silos. And when a new baby comes into the world, you're kind of stuck in limbo because of liability. Is it a mental health issue or is it a, is it an OB problem? Is it related to the birth of the baby? It's clearly a mental health issue, but no one wants to treat mom. So the psych doctors say, oh, no, 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 this is not a mental health issue. This is a temporary change in hormones because of the baby. You need to go talk to your OB. And then the OBs are like, no, this is a, this is a mental health issue. You got to get an appointment with a mental health doctor, with a psychiatrist. But because the wait times are so long, you inevitably, you end up getting stuck, you know, at your six week follow-up or at whatever follow-ups 
the pediatrician or at your OB, you know, you end up getting prescribed psych meds from your OB. And I liken it to like, you know, seeing a cardiologist for your for an eye problem. It's like they're not trained in these medicines. They do not know. They might have a general understanding, but they don't understand the complexities. They can't screen you the right way. And that's one piece of advice I give to every woman or any partner or husband or father, you know, or parent of somebody that gets prescribed these psych meds. My understanding is that antidepressants are without a doubt the most prescribed medications in the world with an efficacy of less than 10%, the least effective, most prescribed medicine in the world. Yeah. Big problem. Also, I just like, you know, really quick, I think about the two is that there's so much confusion when it comes to not only gestation and, and then conception and birth and, um, the fourth trimester, right? We're, right. we're talking about the fourth trimester, which is hardly spoken about sure. unless you go to someone that's really, really mindful and intentional with the the process, which is an expensive endeavor that you have to um, be able to afford. Sure. And um, there's so much confusion in that entire term, all of those terms, because like what you said, the liability is so high. Nobody can do tri- do trials of drugs or do trials of modalities, healing modalities of any sort because the liability is so high. So they could only, all the assumption is just, just avoid it. Just don't do it. That's what you see all the time. If you are pregnant or nursing, just don't do it. Right. And, and that's absolutely wrong. It, it's absolutely wrong. It's like healthy mom, healthy baby. Right. Bad baby, happy, ba- healthy baby. Um, doesn't matter if it's breast milk or formula. And there's a big difference between psychiatrists and then reproductive psychiatrists. Yes. Because this is a temporary situation due to the hormonal imbalance after having the baby, you know, a typical psychiatrist does not understand what mom is going through. So if you talk to any, or at least the ones, and I'm very involved in this world, every reproductive psychiatrist I know, they keep mom on her meds. Mm. They never take them off. In Alexa's case, um, you know, if, if someone's being prescribed Zoloft, and this is just, you know, I blame a lot of, you know, my life and my daughter's reality right now with not having Alexis here on Zoloft because the suicide rates for anybody being prescribed Zoloft with a family history of bipolar in it, catastrophic. So for anyone listening, if you know someone being prescribed, Zoloft to make sure the doctor prescribing it understands your entire family's family history. It's one of the changes in the health system, Allegheny Health Network, that we that our facility is in here in Pittsburgh. It, you know, they screen now using the MDQ, the Mood Disorder Questionnaire, specifically for family history of bipolar, um, because the effects that these antidepressants can have, even if you've never experienced a mental health episode a day in your life, as my wife, can be devastating um, as they were for my wife. And I believe that, you know, the Zoloft is what put my wife into a psychosis. And psychosis, I think one in every 2,000 mothers that deliver um, a baby experience it. And oftentimes in a psychosis, you have to understand that when somebody's in a psychotic state, they may look and talk and sound like the person you love, but they are not the person you know and love. And sometimes you have to make the hard decision, which is to put them in a situation that you would never want to see them in, i.e. a a mental health 
facility, um, somewhere to protect them from themselves. And so I blame this medication for putting her into, you know, was she anxious before? Yes. Was she struggling? Yes. Was she psychotic? No. Mm -hmm. And so when she got on the medicine, she started hearing, you know, phantom baby cries. She couldn't sleep because she'd always say, the baby's crying. I hear, I hear. And I'd check on the baby. The baby would be sound asleep. Um, she started putting the, the furnace up and it was the first week of September. It was, you know, it was still really warm and it was in the eighties in Pittsburgh. And, you know, she had the heat on, you know, as high as it would go, almost 90 degrees, 85 degrees. And we'd be laying in bed and just sweating bullets. And I'd be like, babe, and she, you got to stop this. And she'd be like, no, the baby needs to be warm. And, and I would Google what temperature is baby comfortable at? And it would always say whatever temperature you're comfortable at. But in her mind, you know, the baby had to be 90 and, you know, and then she became scared of the dark. And I would say, let's take a walk with the baby. And she would say, you know, are you crazy? It's dark outside. You can't take babies out in the dark. And so I always tell everyone, like, be, pay attention to what your loved one is saying. And even if it's not your loved one, if you know anyone that just delivered a baby, make sure that they're acting themselves, that they're not saying things that are out of character, ask difficult questions to them. You know, everyone checks up on the baby, but the more important thing is checking up on mom because the baby's going to be just fine. The only way baby's not going to be okay is if mom's not okay. Mm. You know, we went through and it's, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and I look back and I say, oh my God, Stephen, how did you not do this? Or how did you not do that? And the reality was I just was putting faith and and belief into the healthcare system and trusting that what they were telling me was right. Um, and so I always say, like, I do believe that there's a tremendous opportunity for fathers everywhere. I don't believe that men have been pulling their weight around family health, around babies the way they should. The, you know, it takes a village doesn't come from anywhere. I mean, it truly, that's because it takes a village. And Way back when, the whole village bucked up to to help with babies. You know, you look at tribes in the Andes, Andes Mountains or different parts of the world, they have lower maternal mortality rates than we do in the most developed country in the world. Why? Because they have help. They, ha they help their moms. But we have, you know, ambitious women and uh, homes where to live a good life today, for the most part, both parents have to work. But the motherhood part of it still predominantly falls on mom, I feel like. And I realized this just being a single dad and the things that I do that when I go to the, you know, if I golf with my buddies and I'll talk to them and they're like, you do that? <laughs> like, I mean, I do everything. I do, I'm mom, I'm dad, and I'm everything in between. And I, I have a lot of help from my family. But, you know, I just don't think the roles have changed fast enough with what the role of women in the workplace has in this country. Wow, such a deep, great conversation with Stephen so far. Join us next week as we continue the conversation about looking for the warning signs of postpartum depression and how to become an advocate for those affected by perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Be well, everyone. The Third Place Podcast is produced by Podcast Publishing House. If you like what you're hearing, follow us and subscribe at all of your favorite platforms, Apple, Spotify. Also check out the episodes on our website, thirdplacepodcast.com, for additional resources and transcriptions of our episodes. The Third Place is all about continuing the conversation. 
So make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Third Place Podcast. There you can check out our weekly co-host Happy Hours on IGTV. And if you like what you're hearing and want to continue to support our work, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash third place podcast.